Hello and welcome to the Memory Chapel podcast. Memory Chapel is a small, rural, non-denominational Christian church located on Banceville Road in 84, Pennsylvania. On this podcast, we feature an edited version of our Sunday morning worship service at the chapel and the Bible teaching of Pastor David All. Thanks for joining us. And now, let's get to the worship. Good morning. Welcome in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am glad that you decided to tune in today to hear God's word. Before we begin, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend together in worship and the word. We pray that you would guide our time together today, uh, that you would open the scriptures to us, that your spirit would teach us, and that we ourselves would have teachable spirits, and that we would be willing and ready to learn from you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask. Amen. Our scripture today is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as we begin, I'm going to be reading from the first eight verses. But uh, I'm going to leave out two of the verses, uh, verses 2 and 3. We're going to save those for the second point of our sermon today. And speaking of the points of our sermon, there are three of them. I want to give them to you right here at the front end. Uh, The first is called Settling Disputes. Settling Disputes. The second one is called Surprising Disclosures. Surprising Disclosures. And the third and final point is called Sobering Details. Sobering Details. But let's begin talking about Settling Disputes. Let's start 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. After addressing the matter of serious immorality in the Corinthian church and what needed to be done about it, Paul pivots to address a related matter. He had insisted that the church needed to judge the matter of the unrepentant man who was committing sexual sin and put him out of the church. This talk about the church passing judgment on a matter of grave concern such as this causes Paul to think about an alarming tendency in this church. Professing Christians are taking their petty disputes with one another to the secular magistrates and judges. In verse 2, Paul refers to these trivial cases. We can be assured that he is not speaking of criminal cases or matters of great legal concern. In Romans chapter 13, Paul describes the proper role of government for the restraining of evil 
and the protection of the innocent, and defines the proper Christian attitude toward the secular authorities. Furthermore, in the book of Acts, we can see numerous occasions where, when arrested, unjustly imprisoned, and beaten, Paul availed himself of every legal right he possessed as a Roman citizen to defend himself against his opponents. With this in the background, we can safely conclude that Paul is definitely not rejecting the proper use of legal protections and secular courts for Christians who have legitimate need of these instruments. So then, what exactly is the issue that Paul is addressing? The New Bible Commentary has an excellent note on this point, which I think we should hear. It reads, Among the elite of first century society, it was quite acceptable to institute civil proceedings before a magistrate and jury on trivial matters in order to establish one's social and political superiority over others. In weighing up their decision in such cases, the jury had to take into account the status and power of the opposing parties, and the judge had to act likewise in imposing fines. Furthermore, certain persons were excluded from instituting legal proceedings against others. Uh, for example, a son against his father, a slave against his master, a freedman against his patron, a citizen against the magistrate, and an inferior against his social superior. Judges and juries were regularly bribed by participants in a case. In the light of the way local courts operated, it's little wonder that Paul is appalled that some Christians dare to take civil actions before annually elected magistrates and wealthy fellow citizens. They acted as either judge and jury with great partiality and could also be bribed. Paul calls these trivial cases. This term, trivial, suggests that their civil litigation is annoying or harassing, rather than settling genuine matters. We can see from this quote from the New Bible Commentary the matter a bit more clearly now. Paul is not addressing criminal cases or even civil matters of great concern. He is incensed that Christians who are behaving arrogantly who have split themselves up into factions based upon their preferred teachers, who have chosen to ignore a matter of gross immorality in their midst, possibly because of the offender's social status or prominence in the church, we can only guess. They have taken their arrogance so far as this, that a brother would take a brother, maybe a member of a rival faction perhaps, to the secular courts in a civil suit in order to give him a black eye, as it were, to knock him down a few notches on the social ladder and benefit from the imposed monetary fine. <clears throat> Paul's words suggest that the plaintiffs are not above cheating or bribing in order to get the desired outcome we can see how outraged Paul is about this sad state of affairs. 
Can it really be that these Corinthians who have been boasting about their great wisdom are unable to find a single wise person in their congregation who could arbitrate a fair outcome when the case involves such petty disputes of no great consequence? The third stage of a standard first-century education focused on legal studies. Certainly there were brothers within the church who had had training in these matters and could be called upon to provide mediation for these petty disputes. But instead, brother was dragging brother to the corrupt kangaroo city courts, and in doing so, was giving opportunities for the already reviled faith of the Christians to be publicly discredited and mocked. A defeat for you, Paul cries. Wouldn't it be better to be wronged and cheated than to drag the Christian name through the mud? But even worse, it's brothers who are doing the cheating and the wronging. This brings us to our second point, surprising disclosures. And we come across a couple surprising disclosures in verses 2 and 3, which is why I saved them for this second point. In making his point that the Corinthian believers ought to be competent enough to settle their own petty disputes, Paul lets a couple intriguing details out of the bag. Let's read these two verses together. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? The saints will judge the world. And the saints will judge angels. It's just like when you go asking a question to get a basic answer and you end up getting a lot more than you were expecting to know. This is the sort of thing that we could spend a whole lot of time on, and and perhaps one day we will. But for today, we will keep our remarks very brief. I believe that Paul's info drop might tie in with something you've heard me talk about before, uh, something I've called the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which is the idea taken from that text, Deuteronomy 32, that the Lord, at some time past, placed the nations of mankind under the administrative oversight of supernatural beings that formed what we might call the heavenly council or divine assembly. You can read more about this in Psalms 82 and 89. These beings did not lead the nations to fear the Lord. They didn't lead them into righteousness, but instead led them into idolatry, perversion, rebellion, and darkness. And all of this was against the Lord's will. For this they were judged. And the Lord's victory over them was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can read about that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. So with the renegade divine assembly judged, defeated, and out of business, 
does that mean that the Lord would be left without a council assembly? I believe that this is where the tie-in is. I'd like you to consider what Paul said in his letter to the Ephesian church. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, continuing through to chapter 2, verse 7, but we are going to leave out a few verses in the middle, uh, just in sake of time. It says, God exercised his power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet, and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Drop down to the bottom of that passage, which concludes in verse 7 of chapter 2. It says, He, that is God, raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. All who are in Christ through faith in him are called saints, holy ones. They are a new humanity. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all are made alive. They are raised up. They are seated with him in the heavenly realm and will share his throne. Consider what Paul has said about Christ. He said, Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet. And consider what he has said about those who are in Christ. In the Ephesians passage, it says, He raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavens. Paul has received revelation that the saints of God, God's holy ones, who are in Christ and are seated with him in the heavenly realm, will judge the world and angels as well. The divine assembly that rebelled has now been replaced, it would seem. And Paul's point is powerfully made. If the destiny of the church is to administrate and judge the weighty matters of the world and of angels, then how small a matter it should be for the church to tend to petty disputes of little consequence without resorting to the judgment of unbelieving secular authorities. Lastly today, let's consider some sobering details. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul writes, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. Uh, this is a very specific phrase referring to homosexual activity, whether it is dominant or passive. 
No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Paul serves up a sobering reminder to these arrogant, wayward believers who have been wronging and cheating one another through the secular courts. He tells them, God's kingdom will not be inherited by the unrighteous. Have we forgotten what unrighteousness looks like? Indeed, in our day, as in theirs, it seems that our moral compass spins like a top. Paul gives us nine bullet points to reset our compasses to true north. And I assure you, they are just as true for us today as they were for those to whom he wrote back then. Don't be deceived about any of this. God will not be mocked. I would direct you to read Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. We'll turn there now. Romans 2, 6 through 11. Paul writes, God will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favoritism with God. There is another detail Paul gives that I believe is even more sobering than these things we've considered already. After giving the coordinates of unrighteousness, so that they might calibrate their compasses? Paul reminds them of something that perhaps some, in their arrogance, have forgotten. He says, And some of you used to be like this. Some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a sobering reminder, not only to them, but to us as well. Perhaps if we are honest with the Lord and with ourselves, we may find ourselves somewhere in that list of unrighteousness, just as was true of many of the Corinthian believers. But if you have placed your confident trust in the Savior that God has provided, Jesus Christ, What may have been true about you and me is in the past and is true no longer. The one who is in Christ has been washed, has been made holy, uh, set apart, that is, has been justified or, or declared right with God on the good credit of Jesus himself. This was done by God's Spirit when you first believed that God is the one who makes sinners like you and me right with him. Not on the basis of enough good deeds to outweigh the bad, but instead on the basis of simply trusting him through the Savior he has provided, Jesus Christ. 
The one who died for our sins was buried and rose again. The one who has ascended into the heavens and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, where this gets really sobering is right here. You are not what you were. You are not what you were. We are not what we were. We have been washed by God's Spirit. We have been made holy by God's Spirit. We have been declared right with Him through the name of Jesus Christ. Here's the sobering part. Now we must act like it. That's a pretty sobering thought to take in. And that's the thought that Paul has left these Corinthian Christians with. You've been washed. You've been made holy. You've been declared right with God through Jesus Christ. Now, I beg you, start acting like it. Sobering words for them. And if we take them to heart, sobering words for us to hear as well. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that through the Savior you have provided, Jesus Christ, and on his good credit, we have been washed, we have been set apart for you, and we have been declared right with you. And not on the basis of any good that we have done, but on the basis of Christ's righteousness and his sacrifice for our sins. Father, we pray that we might today indeed take these sobering facts to heart. That unrighteousness does not inherit the kingdom of God. That what was true of us before coming to Christ is true no longer. And now we are compelled by your grace, by your mercy, to live like it. Dear Father, we thank you for the revelation that you gave through Paul that there is a glorious future that awaits those who have placed their faith, their confident trust in Jesus Christ. A future that involves some very heavy, weighty things like being seated with Christ in the heavenly realm, judging the world, judging angels. Father, we pray that we might take these sobering truths to heart, live out lives of grateful service to you in obedience to righteousness and in competency to judge ourselves, to not get caught up and tangled up in the petty disputes that are sure to arise between Christians living in a fallen world that we might judge with righteous judgment according to your word and that we might act with charity, with grace, with forgiveness toward one another, however we may have been wronged. We ask for your help by your Spirit in all of these matters. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. And now, brother, sister, may the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, today, this week, and even forever. 
Amen. Thank you for having tuned in with us today. We hope you found the time in worship and the word to be encouraging, challenging, and strengthening. If so, we'd love to hear from you. We realize there are so many ways you could spend your time. We're glad you chose to spend it with us in worship and the word. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be with you all today, this week, and forever.